So most of you have probably heard the hymn Amazing Grace. And my guess is um, that if you grew up in a church, you heard Amazing Grace. Uh, but even if you're not a church person, it's your first time in church, you're kind of new to church, you've probably heard the hymn Amazing Grace because of just its, its popularity. It has definitely stood the test of time. It's got that great first line that says, Amazing Grace has sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, the story behind Amazing Grace is almost as amazing as the song itself. It was written by a guy named John Newton, and he was an Englishman, and he lived in the 1700s, and he was a sailor. And you've probably heard the expression, he cusses like a sailor. Well, the people on John Newton's ship, his language was so offensive, was so beyond normalcy, that they were offended. So sailors were offended by John Newton's language. It was that bad. And so he worked as the first mate on a ship, which was called the Brownlow. And the Brownlow's trading route was that it was a slave ship. And so he would go to Africa, round up slaves, take them to the Americas, pick up goods there, bring them back to England, and then make that circuit. That's what he did. He was a slave trader for a living. Well, one day, his ship was in the North Atlantic, and a huge storm came on this ship. And he was the first mate, and so he was fearful for his life, fearful for the lives of the members of the crew. And so he prayed. He said, God, if you will rescue me from this storm, then I will serve you with my whole life. Well, God rescued him from the storm. The storm calmed down, and his life began to change but just a little bit. He stopped cussing, he stopped drinking, he stopped carousing, he stopped those sorts of things. But he continued on in his slave trading. And about six years later or so, he gave up slave trading as well. And then in 1772, he wrote a poem, not a song, he wrote a poem. And the poem goes like this. Amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. Was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear that hour I first believed. So he wrote it as a poem, and then it was put to music in, in actually a couple of different types of settings and a couple of different tunes. But then John Newton went on to be an outspoken abolitionist. He spoke and wrote and did poems and so forth against slavery. But as you hear about his life, being a slave trader, being kind of the wild, ruckus life that he lived, you'd look at his life and you'd say, a man who rejected God over and over and over, why would God step into this guy's life? I mean, he was a slave trader. He did all of these kind of awful things. As a matter of fact, I was reading up on his life, and he was such a jerk that his own crew turned him over to the people in Sierra Leone, an African country, and said, make him a slave because we can't take him anymore. He lived as a slave, a white person, as a slave in Africa for a while. And then his dad had to step in and come basically rescue him or buy him out. But you look at his story, and you'll wonder, why would God take a man like that and make him become a person who wrote Amazing Grace? 
And the reason is, and this is our bottom line for this morning, it's this, is that Jesus takes rebels and rejects and he makes them into royalty. Jesus takes royals, rejects and rebels and he turns them into royalty. About 250 years after the writing of Amazing Grace, there's a song that was written not too many years ago called Sons and Daughters. And I don't think it will have the staying power that Amazing Grace has had. Um, But listen to this. It says, The love he lavished on us, he called us children of the king. And in his love and kindness, he chose the lonely and the weak. That Jesus is still in the habit of taking rebels and rejects and turning them into royalty. And this is not my notes, but... Just as we were singing today, and I was just reflecting on what I was going to share with you, for whatever reason, God brought to mind the fact that I was once a rebel. I was once one who rejected God. And I've come a long way since that. But sometimes, you know, if you're a believer in Christ, sometimes we can kind of feel like, well, this is who I've always been. But I recognize that, man, I had a torrid past. I had an embarrassing past. And if we ever played that video here at church, I'd be thoroughly embarrassed. But God rescued me. Now, I do this as a setup because we're going through the book of Acts as a church. And so on Sunday mornings, we're hitting kind of the highlights from the book of Acts, a couple of stories here and there. Uh, but I encourage you to be reading the book of Acts right now. You can find the reading plan out in the lobby or on the website if you're watching uh, but read the book of Acts in your own because it's fascinating. There's so many great stories. But the story we're going to look at this morning is the story of Paul becoming a Christian. So it's found in Acts chapter 9. It's found in Acts chapter 9. And we're going to see that Jesus takes this rebel, this hater of the church, has an encounter with him, and then he becomes royalty. He becomes a child of the king, a child of God. Paul is arguably the most influential Christian that has ever lived. He, he spread the gospel in most of the known world where he was, uh, but he also wrote about half of the books that we have or the letters that we have in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at his life, and part of what we're going to discern is he's a lot like John Newton, and we go, there's no way that God would pick him and use him to further his kingdom. So we're in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says this. It says, But Saul, still breathing murder, excuse me, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if any, so if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So here he's called Saul, and so he's called Saul is his Jewish name, and Paul is his Greek name. And typically, not always, but typically, Saul is how he's referred to as before he became a Christian, and then Paul typically, but not always, who he was after he became a Christian. And it's kind of interesting, the meanings of those two names. So Saul was the first king of Israel. And the word means, or the word Saul, the name Saul means desired, right? Which is kind of a a neat thing, like desired. But then the word Paul, or the name Paul, it means small. And it's just interesting as you think about what God does. So he had this name which was desired, 
but maybe in the eyes of the world, but that's not what God was after. And then his name is Paul, which is what he's called after he becomes a Christian. And it's this idea that God takes the small of the world and does incredibly great things with them. It says that he was still breathing threats and murder. So Paul is mentioned, or Saul is mentioned, I'm going to kind of use it interchangeably, but he's mentioned three times prior to chapter 9. Twice he's mentioned in the death of Stephen. So Stephen in chapter, uh, I believe it's 8, the beginning of chapter 8, was martyred. He was stoned to death. And it says that Paul was there. He held the garments of people who were throwing the stones. And he also stood there and he gave his approval that in fact Stephen should be killed. But then in Acts chapter 8 verse 3 it says this. It says, But Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And so that's what he did. He rounded up Christians and he brought them in to prison. Now, this is how serious he was. It says in verse 2 of uh, Acts chapter 9, it says, He had letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So from Jerusalem, so that's where he'd been rounding up Christians and putting them in jail and, and trying them and trying to get them killed. Now he's got a letter from the high priest that says, you can go to Damascus. Damascus was a six-day journey away from Jerusalem. It wasn't just like just a little bit over. Like he's serious about taking this persecuting of Christians on the road. So as he gets close to Damascus, here's what happens. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. So he's walking towards Damascus. He's getting close. Appears to be daytime, but this huge light shines and blinds him. And then he continues on, verse 4. It says, And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, it's interesting here, and I want us to understand this. So the light comes. And the voice comes and it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then a little bit later, it says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's not what we would expect to find the voice to say or the voice of God to say. We would expect the voice to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? But it doesn't say that says, why are you persecuting me? And that tells us something about the value that God places on the church. That to Jesus, Jesus and the church are interchangeable. Sometimes the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. But you see, sometimes in our Christian culture, we'll say, you know, I really like Jesus but I don't really like the church. Like I'm into Jesus, but I'm not so much about the church. But we read this and we go, we can't make that distinction. We don't have the right to make that distinction because Jesus is saying when you're persecuting the church, if you don't like the church, then you don't like me. It'd be if we met and we're kind of getting to know each other and you knew my wife Stacy and you're like, hey, man, I really like hanging out with you, Matt. You're great. This is a lot of fun. But your wife Stacy, like, 
she's kind of weird and whacked out, and she cries all the time in church, and I don't know if I really want to hang out with her because she's kind of messed up. That's not going to fly. Like, if you feel that way about her, like, we're not going to hang out. Like, hey, Matt, I'll hang out with you, but I don't really want to hang out with Stacy so much. I'm like, dude, this relationship is not going to work. But you see, that's what Jesus is saying about himself and the church. He says, why are you persecuting me? Why are you persecuting the church? We don't have the option of saying, I love Jesus, but I don't want to be involved with the church. Now, I realize I'm sort of preaching to the choir, as they say, because you're in church or you're watching online. But you hear that sometimes. Like, I'm into Jesus, I'm into, I like God, but I don't like the church. You look at this and you go, it's not really an option. Then it says this, verse 6. It says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, if you know the story, you, go, you just read on and go, oh, that's kind of nice, and you keep reading. But remember this, that Paul doesn't know how the story turns out, right? So Paul sees a bright light, falls to the ground. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? And then he says, now I want you to go on to Damascus and wait there. And again, we're like, oh, okay, so he'll go wait there. That's fine. But I want you to put it more in terms of, think about this. Think about my son, Riley, or your own son. Like, so of my four children, Riley got in trouble the most, right? We'll just, we'll just say that. If you're watching Riley, you know it's true. Um, you know, but there are, many, there are countless times where I said to Riley or Will or Ben, occasionally Emily, but she was always the angel child. She knows that too, if you're watching her. So, but here's the thing is, he would get in trouble, for whatever it was, throwing a ball in the house, yelling at his sister, being mean to his mom, whatever it was, and I would say, Riley, go up to your room and wait for me there. Because I was so frustrated with him that I couldn't deal with him now because something really bad was going to come out of my mouth. So just go to your room and wait for me there. And, you know, and he would wait there on his bed and just be you know, afraid of what privilege he's going to lose or is he going to get punished or what, you know, whatever it was. He was up there like with that fear. That's what Paul is going through because he's been naughty, right? He's persecuted Christians, and then Jesus confronts him, and he says, now go wait in Damascus until I come and deal with you. And you just wonder what was going through his brain as he was waiting. And then here's what happens next, verse 7. He says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. You know, back in February, if you're here, we talked about Jonah and how Jonah spent three days in the belly of a big fish. And that was what we called his thinking time. And I think that that's kind of what was going on with Saul here. He was doing some thinking. He was thinking about his life and what he had done. He was probably thinking about the Old Testament and that they said, you know, his disciples said, he's the fulfillment of the Messiah. And he was probably thinking about that and thinking about, okay, when Jesus comes or whoever comes, what am I going to do? How am I going to react? He was doing some thinking, some self-reflecting. And then here's what happens. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am, Lord. 
And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Now, again, imagine that you don't know how the story is going to turn out. And so you're Ananias, and Ananias says, and God says, or Jesus says to you, Hey, Ananias, you go, here I am. He goes, I want you to go find Saul of Tarsus. And you're going, okay, I heard that he was on his way to Damascus and that he has letters to round up and put in prison all the Christians, both the men and the women, and that's a big deal. And I kind of thought that I would hide from him, and you're telling me to go find him. He's got to be going, this is crazy. But he has already said, Lord, here I am. What you say, I will do. So he hesitates a little bit, and then this is what happens. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. He says, This guy, Saul, I have set him aside for a purpose. He's going to go to the Gentiles. Now, historically, up until this point of the church, it's mainly been the gospel going to those who are out of the Jewish background, and they became Christians. There were a few Gentiles, but not a whole lot. He's saying, look, we're going to take this thing worldwide. Paul is going to go to the Gentiles and even the kings of the world. And he says this, verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, I haven't asked you to underline or circle a whole lot, but I want you to underline or make a note of the word brother. He calls him Brother Saul. And that's so significant. And here's why. Because he was coming up to Saul and he's saying, you are a brother in Christ. You are part of the family of God. You are forgiven. I will not hold your past against you. You don't have to prove to me that you're repentant. You are a child of the King. And the same is true for you. That if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're part of the family of God, that you are forgiven, that you are royalty because you are a child of the king, and you don't have to prove your worth to him, your value to him. You are a brother or sister in Christ. You are a child of God. No matter how rebellious you were, no matter how much you rejected God, no matter how much you felt rejected by people, when you place your faith in Christ, you are royalty. I want to take the remaining few minutes, and I want to ask kind of a question and say, which of these three, and I'm 
using air quotes on three, which of these three characters do you identify with the most? Do you identify with Saul? Do you identify with Paul? And those are the same character, but I'm going to use them differently. Or do you identify with Ananias? So here's the first one is, are you Saul? Saul was in active rebellion against Jesus. He says, I don't want a relationship with God. And then he realized that truth that he needed Jesus to get to, to God. And perhaps you're here this morning or watching online and you've never placed your faith in Christ. You've been to church or maybe you've been in active rebellion and, and somebody dragged you here, you're kind of tuning in or watching. And I want you to know that the step for you is the same as the step that Saul took to place your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you Saul this morning? But then there's a second part of this. The next thing that Saul did, he becomes Paul, the next thing that he did is he got baptized. He placed his faith in Christ, and in that process, he was baptized. And so maybe this morning, are you Saul in the sense that you've placed your faith in Christ, but you haven't been baptized yet? And maybe you became a Christian a month ago or two years ago or two decades ago, but you've never taken that step. And I encourage you to take that step. Be a part of the baptism that we're going to do on June 13th. It's going to be an outside baptism. You can sign up online. But maybe that's the next step for you. You've been kind of putting that off or not really sure. And here it is. We see a great example. He becomes a Christian, and then he's baptized. Here's the second question. Are you Paul? Are you Paul? Look again at what it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. He says, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. You see, Paul, or Saul, when he became a Christian, he had a call on his life, to be this instrument to carry to the Gentiles. And my question for you is, what are you called to do? Because God got a hold of your life, whenever that was, God got a hold of your life, not just for you so that you could go to heaven, but he got a hold of your life so that you would live on mission for him, that you would be his vessel of carrying the gospel, that you would care and love and serve and lead. That God, your mission is not just to come to church. Your mission is not just to come to church and to read the Bible. Your mission is not just to come to church and read the Bible and pray for yourself so that you got more stuff. No, you have a mission that God has given you to go and be a part of what he is doing in this world. I brought a visual with me. So this is a pitcher, right? And so you take the pitcher and you go over and you, you fill it with water at your sink, right? And then what do you do with the pitcher? Do you, do you just set it on the counter and go, well, I'll just set it there and it may evaporate a little bit of water, evaporate over a week or two and I'll fill it up a little bit and set it back on the counter. No, that's not the purpose of a pitcher, is it? You fill a pitcher with water and then you take it and you pour it in a glass or you water a plant with it or you, whatever you do, but you take it. It's, the purpose of the pitcher is not to contain water. The purpose of the pitcher is to be used for whatever the water is for and to take it somewhere else. That you have a purpose that God has called 
you too. To be on mission for Him. You know, it says again in verse 20, it says that immediately after he became a Christian, it says this, it says, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. As soon as he became a Christian, he began to live it. He began to do what God has called him to do. Are you doing what God has called you to do? And, and maybe you kind of look at this and you go, well, it's kind of easy for Paul, because Jesus told Ananias what he was supposed to be doing. You go, well, for me, it's a little bit harder. And that may be true. But that doesn't mean that we don't figure out our purpose in life and how God wants us to be his hands and feet in this world. Here's the last one. Are you Ananias? Ananias was used by Jesus because he made himself available. He made himself available. He basically said, here I am, Lord. That's what Ananias says. Here I am. I'm available to do whatever it is that you want me to do. You know, we've talked about the 10-second rule a couple times. It's this idea that when, when God lays something in your heart to do, do it within the first 10 seconds if it's something that you're reasonably sure that Jesus would want you to do. Because otherwise you'll talk your way out of it. And this is Ananias practicing essentially the 10-second rule. He said, Jesus says to him, Ananias, and it doesn't say within 10 seconds, but I'm sure it was within 10 seconds. He says, here I am. The problem that we have, or the fear that we have, is we're not sure what God is going to say. We say, here I am, I'm available. I'm like, well, what is God going to ask me to do? And am I going to be able to do it? And Ananias had the same sort of fear. Like, I'm not sure about this. And it was interesting. We look back at verse 15, and that's where he says to him, Go, because Saul, who will become Paul, is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles, to the children of Israel, to kings. He says, that's my chosen instrument. And he gives him a vision for who he's going to share the gospel with. And you know, when we respond to what God tells us to do, we have no idea what God's going to do with that person that we're loving or caring for or serving or talking to. You know, we may share the gospel or we may love or we may care for the next Paul in life, so to speak. A couple of weeks ago, I was hiking um, the New River Gorge with some friends and we were hiking the Long Point Trail. There's about, I don't know, 10 or 12 of us or so. And, um, and two of the guys are Indian. And so we're walking. And I know one of them pretty well. The other guy I don't real, know real well. But we're kind of getting to know each other and just talking about life and, you know, school and all that kind of stuff. And, and so we're walking. And, uh, and I feel the Holy Spirit prompting me to say, why don't you ask him about faith and religion in India? And so I was like, gosh, it seems like a kind of a big question, a little bit forward. And so I, I honestly, I probably waited like nine and a half seconds. I'm like, hey. And then I asked him. And I just started with the question. I said, 
you know, in India, what are the different religions in India? Because I've heard there's a lot of different religions. And so he explained to me, he's like, there's Hindus and there's Muslims and there's some Christians. And here's how these groups of religions interact with each other. And it's kind of geographical and where they live and so forth. And, and so we're talking and we're talking about some of the, the um, Hindu gods of which he's Hindu. And he talks about Vishnu and Shiva and these different ones and kind of laughing because there's like so many different gods and and we're just talking kind of about the teachings of Hinduism. And then, just in the course of conversation, he says to me, he kind of gives me, he gives me a question. He says, well, what are the major teachings of the Bible? And it was such a great question because, and I loved coming from him because in, in the U.S., like, that's not a question that we would ask. We would say, well, what does the Bible say? But he's like, what are the major teachings of the Bible? Because they talk about teachings in the Hindu faith and especially in India. And so I said, well, the major teaching of the Bible is this. And I said, you know, that, that man, all of us sin and do things that are against what God wants us to do so we can't be in God's presence. But God wants to be in a relationship with us, so he sent Jesus Christ who came to the earth and he died on a cross and he took the penalty for all of our sin. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then we can be in a right relationship with God here on earth and then go to heaven. It was a little bit longer conversation than that, a little bit more give and take, but that's what I shared with him. I don't know what's going to happen with him spiritually. That may be the end of it, or maybe God's going to tug in his heart, or maybe he's going to be the next Paul that shares the gospel with all of India. I don't know, but all I know is that I responded and did what the Holy Spirit prompted me to do, because I said, as Ananias said, here I am. And so for you, are you Ananias where you need to say, here I am and make yourself available? Are you like Paul where you need to figure out, say, what is the mission that God has called me to do? Or are you like Saul that the step for you is to become a Christian or the step for you is to be baptized? I don't know what God is laying on your heart, but my guess is, is that you do. And I encourage you to take that step that God is laying on your heart. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this story of Paul. And you took a rebel, one who hated and persecuted the church and hated and persecuted Jesus, and got a hold of his life and changed his life, that he would become royalty, that he would be a child of the king. And God, you do the same thing for us. And for that, I'm so thankful. God, help us to take that next step, whether it be baptism or living on mission or just saying, here I am, I'm available for whatever it is that you want me to do. I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.